invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. The page uh, in the red, bullet, the red Bibles around you is listed in the bulletin for our passage today. We're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 3 beginning in verse 4 and down through verse 10. First John 3, beginning in verse 4, John says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident Who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to this portion of your word and we confess that it is perhaps confusing to us, perhaps heavy for us to hear. So we would pray, as we do each week, for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our minds and our hearts, that we would see what your word says, that we would understand what it means, and that you would reveal to us ways that it needs to be applied into our lives. Father, remind us that we are your children. And as we meditate on that today, we pray that you would also then help us to be moved, motivated, empowered to go out and live like who we are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in the 1970s and 1980s, there was a popular teaching that was going around in the evangelical world. Uh, It was called various things, but often it was referred to as victorious Christian living. There are many variations of that, but at the core, it was this idea that every Christian is meant to live a victorious life, victory over sin in this life. It was particularly popular within evangelical campus ministries during that time period, but there were other churches and individuals that were uh, teaching and preaching these ideas as well. And I can remember at some point uh, seeing a graphic or a chart that those that were teaching these things were using to represent what a true victorious life looked like for a Christian. It was a picture of a circle that was representing our life. And somewhere on the picture, there was a picture of a throne. That throne was representing Christ. And if your life was not a victorious Christian life, then that throne was outside of the circle, somewhere on the picture, representing the fact that Christ was not in your life. But for the victorious Christian, that throne was in the center of the circle. And then from out of the throne, coming out around uh, the various parts of the circle out, out from the throne uh, were things that that we do in our life. We have a home, we have work, we have education, we have entertainment. And it was this picture of the victorious Christian life where Christ is on the throne of our heart and all of life 
is in perfect proportion, in perfect position. The goal of the Christian life, according to this teaching, is to get everything in its right place and then experience true happiness and victory in this life. Now, there's some true things uh, that were being taught uh, by those that held these views, but I would suggest to you that overall, that view, that theology is at least overly simplistic with regard to the Christian life, perhaps even sometimes unhealthy in how it viewed the Christian life. And at times, I would say that it came dangerously close to teaching that Christians could essentially live in this life without sin. That was complete victory, that we would have complete and utter victory over our sin in this life. I know many genuine Christians, believers in Christ, who ended up getting burned out just by trying to live according to this teaching. Now, here's the interesting thing. In many places that that teaching was put out there, it was 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10 that was used as a proof text. Is that what John was saying here in this passage? Is that what he meant? And regardless of what he meant, what are we supposed to do with it? In terms of the challenging parts of this passage, how are we supposed to apply this to ourselves today? That's what I want us to take a few moments to look at today. What John said, what John meant, and then what difference it makes for us. So first of all, what did John say? And in order to understand what John was saying, we need to remind ourselves of the context in which John was writing. You'll remember that John was writing to a church we believe was probably in Ephesus in the late first century. And that church had been dealing with a significant problem. There were false teachers that had infiltrated the church and were teaching false doctrine, heretical doctrine. And they were teaching what we now know as Gnosticism. The spirit is good, but the body is bad. And the goal of the Christian life is to attain the special gnosis or knowledge of God. And if you did, then these false teachers said you would have one of two experiences. Potentially, if you got that special knowledge, if you believed the right things, then you could live a sinless life. Other of the teachers were saying, if you got that special knowledge of God, if you believed the right things, then it didn't even really matter how you lived because that was the body. What you believe is in the spirit. There was no necessary connection between what you believe and how you live. These false teachers had convinced some of the people in this church of these things and had led them away. And now there was this group of people left in Ephesus, believers in Christ, proclaiming the true gospel of Jesus Christ, and they were shaken. What was true? How could they know? How could they know that they were truly God's people? How could they know that they were truly God's children? And as we've talked about previously, at the end of his letter in 1 John chapter 5, John tells them, I am writing all of these things in this letter to you so that you who remain, you who are truly God's people, can know that you have eternal life. You can know that indeed you are the children of God. That's the context into which John was writing. A couple of weeks ago, we were looking at chapter 2, verses 28 down through chapter 3, verse 3. And what we saw there was that John was telling them, this is what a true child of God looks like. This is how you can know that you are a child of God, because this is what it looks like. And he said several things in those verses. 
part of what it looks like is to be overwhelmed and to be in awe of the love of the Father for us. Part of what it looks like is that we put off sin and we put on righteousness. Part of what it looks like is that we don't look for our home here in this life and that we wait with eager expectation for Jesus's return. That's John was saying that's what it is. That's what it looks like to be a child of God. And now he's coming in the following verses, verses four through ten of chapter three, and he's giving them more about what it looks like to be a child of God. Now, you need to understand the structure of these verses a little bit. It's helpful to understand what John is doing in verses 4 through 10. Essentially, he's saying the same thing twice. Verses 4 through 7, he says something that we'll look at in just a moment. And then he comes back in verses 8 and 10 and says something very similar or parallel to what he had said just previously. So I want you to look with me here, uh, beginning in verse 4. Notice what he says. He has kind of this introductory statement. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So he begins with this statement that everybody who practices sinning is practicing lawlessness. In other words, he's telling us what the nature of sin is. It is law-breaking. It is breaking God's law. That's the nature of sin. He gives us a kind of a parallel uh, uh, part of that in verse 8. He says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, he says. He's telling us here not about the nature of sin. That was in verse 4. That's the lawlessness aspect. But now he's telling us about the origin of sin, where it comes from. It comes from the devil, that fallen, corrupt angel who since the beginning of recorded time has been sinning. He moves on in verse 5 to remind them the purpose of Christ's first coming. You know, he says, that he, that's speaking about Jesus, he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. Here's the purpose of Jesus' incarnation, of his first coming. He appeared, he came into this world to take away sins. And notice, he's the only one that could do it. Because he is sinless. We get the corollary of verse 5 at the end of verse 8. He says at the end of verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Not only did Jesus come to take away our sins, to pay for them with his life, but Jesus' coming also had the purpose of destroying the works of the devil. Because the works of the devil are lawlessness. John then draws a logical application in verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. No one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. Only one who is truly in Christ, one who is God's child, one who is abiding in Jesus, doesn't keep on sinning because, why? Because Jesus came to take away our sins. The corollaries in verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born 
of God. Again, this is the logical application that John is giving to us. No one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? Because he has the seed of God abiding in him and he's been born of God. One who has been born of God, who has the seed of God within him, doesn't make a practice of continuing to sin again and again. And then he draws some conclusions in verses 7 and 10. Verse 7 he says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. He says, don't be deceived by these false teachers who infiltrated the church. Don't be led astray by the heretical teaching. Doing is the test of being. He says it again in verse 10 a little bit differently. By, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. How you live reveals whose child you are, John says. You're either a child of God or a child of the devil. A child of God practices righteousness and loves his brothers and sisters in Christ. The child of the devil does not. So this is what John is saying here in these verses, in verses 4 through 10. He tells us that the nature of sin is law-breaking and that the origin of sin is the devil. Jesus came in his incarnation the first time that he appeared to take away our sins and to destroy the work of the devil. So if we are a true child of God, we won't keep on sinning because we have been born of God and we have the seed of God growing inside of us. So don't be deceived. Don't be led astray. Do righteousness and love your brothers and sisters in Christ. That proves who you are. As a child of God. This is what John says. But I think we need to think for a moment about what John meant. And perhaps it's better to start with what he didn't mean. Some use this passage, as I mentioned earlier, to say that if you're a true Christian, you can and you will and you must stop sinning. You can have complete victory over all sin in your life and be sinless in this world. And in fact, if you do sin, you're not a true child of God. In fact, you've never even seen or known Jesus. It's possible and even necessary for Christians to no longer sin in this life. Now, we know for certain that that is not what John meant. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know that because about 32 verses before our passage today, John said these things at the end of chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And he goes on into chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. John was plain. John was clear. We will always be sinners in this life. And to claim that we are not sinners is to make God out a liar because he has said that we are sinners. Until Jesus comes back a second time, we will have sin in our life. So if John is not saying that Christians can live without sin in these verses in chapter 3, what did he mean? 
I believe the key to understanding what John means here in this, these verses is to look very carefully at the tense of the verbs that John used. Look at verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. John there uses a present active participle. Look at verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Again, both of those times there, both verbs that John is using are in present active verbs. Verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Again, two verbs that John uses there are in the present active tense. So what's the point? As he's talking about making a practice of sinning, as he's talking about keeping on sinning, he's using these present active verbs to give us the sense of a continual, ongoing, habitual and persistent, unrepentant sin. So here's what John meant, brothers and sisters in Christ. There is an incompatibility between someone who makes a profession of being a child of God and that person living a life of habitual, persistent, ongoing, and unrepentant sin. Those things are incompatible. That's what the devil does. That's not what a child of God does. Why not? Well, John tells us because a true child of God has been born of God, they have been given a new heart and they now have the seed of God abiding in them. Jesus came and took away the penalty and the power of sin in his first coming and his death on the cross and his resurrection. So that one who is truly a child of God, although they still sin, doesn't live in unrepentant, habitual, persistent sin. A true child of God is brought to conviction of their sin. They repent. They turn away from their sin and turn again to their Father in Heaven to hear about the grace and mercy of our Father in Heaven through the Gospel. A true believer, a true child of God, fights and leans against their sin. God's seed, the Holy Spirit, is at work in a child of God to slowly, over the course of life, make us more and more like our Savior. That we would see measures of success against our sin over the course of our lifetime. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is what John meant. This incompatibility between someone who professes to be a child of God and someone who is living in unrepentant, habitual and persistent and ongoing sin. And when we start to understand what John meant, then we also can start to feel the encouragement as well as hear the challenging warning that he gives us. We need to be careful to not fly over too quickly the encouraging things that John says to God's children in these verses. You can see one of those things in verse 5. You know, he says, you know that Christ appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is meant to be an encouragement to us that through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, He took away our sins. Not that He took away the possibility or the capability of us sinning, but He took away the power of sin over us, and He took away the penalty of sin for us. 
And that's something that only Jesus could have done because in Him and Him alone there is no sin. By living a life of perfect love and obedience to His Father, He alone is worthy to pay our debt with God. And that's exactly what He did. If you are a child of God this morning, then your sins have been paid for in full, past and present and future. In Christ you have been given the status of a beloved child of God. The status of having the perfect righteousness of Jesus credited to you. And there is nothing that can take that away from you. It is anchored in the finished and the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And that's the reason why John tells us at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from our righteous, unrighteousness. That when we do sin, we have an advocate with our Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the one who has turned away God's wrath from us. He's the propitiation for our sins. And He has paid for our sins in full. This is meant to be an encouragement to the children of God. You can see another encouraging thing in verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. If you're a Christian, then you have been born of God, and you have the seed of God abiding in you. That means something fundamentally changed in you the moment you became a Christian. God took your heart of stone and He gave you a heart of flesh. God changed you from being spiritually dead to be spiritually, spiritually alive in Christ. He's given to you His seed to live and abide in you, almost certainly a reference to the Holy Spirit. We now have the Holy Spirit abiding in us. The third person of the Trinity, the one who's called an advocate, a comforter, is living and abiding in us. And there's nothing that can take that away. We can never be changed back to the old self. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you need to sit and rest in these promises that are given to us by John. The penalty of our sin, the power of our sin has been taken away. And now the seed of God abides in us. We indeed are His very children. So be encouraged. Be filled with hope. Have your faith strengthened. There's also a challenging warning here for us. Ongoing, habitual, persistent, and unrepentant sin is incompatible with a profession of faith and being a child of God. That doesn't mean that we don't sin. It doesn't even mean that there aren't seasons in our life when we really struggle with besetting sins. But what it does mean is that a child of God comes to a, a sense of conviction of their sin and repents of it, fights and leans against it, is active in avoiding temptation and putting guards in their life where they needed to be put. That when a child of God is particularly struggle, or struggling with a particularly difficult sin, a besetting sin, they, they make use of the helps that God has given to us as His children. The means of grace. We, we use the Word. We, we, we pray to our Father. We, we worship, in, we worship the, our Lord together and we celebrate the Lord's Supper. 
We're intentional about being involved with brothers and sisters in Christ in fellowship and community with God's people. We reach, reach out to Christian friends to have them help us in our time of greatest struggle with our sins. That's what a child of God does. A child of God doesn't just resign themselves to the sense of, well, this is just how I am. This is just how it's going to be. If you're apathetic about your sin, then hear John's warning. In Christ, we are new creations. We have been given a new spiritual heart. We've been given a new disposition. We have new power that comes from the Holy Spirit that is abiding within us. That is a promise of real and tangible change. And it should move us to make a commitment to do the hard work that needs to be done in rooting out our sin and repenting and turning again to our Father. A real child of God doesn't isolate themselves and hide their struggle from those who can help them. Someone put it this way, to get at kind of what John is talking about here, doing is the test of being. You can actually see that in verse 9. John says that those who are born of God don't make a practice of sinning. And those who have God's seed abiding in them don't keep on sinning. You see the doing and the being? The being is what? Those who are born of God. Those who have the seed of God abiding in them. That's being. And the doing part is not continuing on in unrepentant, persistent, and habitual sin. It is the doing, it is the putting off of our sin and turning to our Father again and repentance and faith and believing the gospel that shows who we are. Doing is the test of being. Or another way that it's been put is a quote by Charles Spurgeon that I saw this past week. Grace is the mother and nurse of holiness and not the apologist of sin. Now, isn't that a clever statement? God's grace to us in the gospel is the mother and the nurse of holiness. It is what is to move us to holiness. And it is not the apologist or the defender of sin. God's grace to us. God's grace to us in Christ, God's adopting us into his family is meant to lead us to holiness, not to give us an excuse for our sin. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 2. Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness in the gospel, his grace to you, his adopting you into his family as his beloved child is meant to move you to repentance, to see your sin, to acknowledge it before the Father, to confess it and repent of it and turn away and to turn to Him again in righteousness. This is what, a, uh, what God's true and authentic and genuine grace does in a child of God. And if you're here this morning, if you're online this morning and you are a professing child of God and you're living in unrepentant, ongoing habitual and persistent sin, then John would sit across the table from you this morning and tell you that that is not compatible with your profession of faith as a child of God. We're meant to be convicted of our sin and moved to repentance, to fight and lean against our sin and to root out sin from our life.
growing in holiness and doing righteousness more and more over the course of our life. Some of you are aware that uh, churches and Christians around the world during the month of November uh, take time to reflect on orphan ministry and orphan care, even as Elder Acey was praying in the prayer this morning. Our own Alongside Orphans will have some information out in the foyer in the coming weeks about some of those ministry opportunities of coming alongside of families that have adopted or are in the process of adopting or fostering. But one of the main motivators for Christians who adopt, and one of the primary pictures that the Bible gives us of being a Christian, is the picture of adoption. Being adopted into God's family. We were spiritual orphans in this world. And God, by His own free choice, brought us into His family. We didn't choose Him. He chose us. And He bought us with a price. An infinite price of the blood of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And He grafts us. He adopts us into His family. And He gives us all the privileges and blessings of being a part of the family of God. But He also gives us responsibilities and expectations. That we're expected to live like who we are. To live like our Father calls us to live and to follow His ways. And brothers and sisters in Christ, this really is the basis for what John is saying here to his first century readers and to us today. Whose child are you? Whose child are you? Have you been adopted by your Father into His family? Then go out and live like who you are. Don't go out and live like you belong to the family of the devil. He is not your father. The Lord is your father. You've been born of your heavenly father. You've been given his seed to abide in you. Go out and live like who you are. Put off your habitual unrepentant sin. Lean and fight against it. Confess it. Repent of it and turn to your father to hear his fatherly love. His grace to you in the gospel. And put on righteousness. Loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I'm sure that there are people here in this room. People in the back part of the building. People that are online this morning. Who are apathetic about their sin. And I pray, Father, for those of us that would call ourselves children of God, that would make a profession of faith, that you are our Father and we are your children, that your Spirit would be at work in us, causing the apathy to be replaced with sorrow, and that you would move in us to bring us to conviction of our sin, and that you would then bring us to yourself, that we might hear of the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. Father, I'm sure that there are also those here today and online who are particularly aware of their sin and who are wrestling even as they read John's words here, wondering could they truly be a child of God. And I pray for those of us, Father, that are in that place, that you would remind us of these incredible, encouraging truths that John says here in these verses. That Jesus has taken away our sins. They are no longer counted against us. We are your children, beloved and treasured for all eternity.
And you have been, you have given us the Holy Spirit to abide in our hearts and to lead us into a growing sense of righteousness. Father, for all of us, we pray that you would take John's words and help them not to be something that we simply listen to quickly and pass, pass over, but help us to meditate on them and that you, through the work of your Spirit, would draw us closer to yourself as your children. We pray you would do this because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.